Section 3 of Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Matt Perard. Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 4, Section 3. Theodore de Banville by Anonymous. Theodore de Banville, 1823-1891 Theodore Follain de Banville is best known as a very skillful maker of polished artificial verse. His poetry stands high, but it is the poetry not of nature, but of elegant society. His muse, as Mr. Henley says, is always in evening dress. References to the classic poets are woven into all of his descriptions of nature. He is distinguished, scholarly, full of taste, and brilliant in execution, never failing in propriety, and never reaching inspiration. As an artist in words and cadences, he has few superiors. These qualities are partly acquired and partly the result of birth. Born in 1823, the son of a naval officer, from his earliest years he devoted himself to literature. His birthplace, Moulins, an old provincial town on the banks of the Allier, where he spent a happy childhood, made little impression on him. Still almost a child, he went to Paris, where he led a life without events, without even a marriage or an election to the academy. He died March 13, 1891. His place was among the society people and the artists, the painter Corbet and the writers Murra, Baudelaire, and Gautier were among his closest friends. He first attracted attention in 1848 by the publication of a volume of verse, The Caryatids. In 1857 came another, Olds Phenomenalesque, and later another series, under the same title, the two together containing his best work in verse. Here he stands highest though he wrote also many plays, one of which, Gringoire, has been acted in various translations. The wife of Socrates also holds the stage. Like his other work, his drama is artificial, refined, and skillful. He presents a marked instance of the artist working for art's sake. During the latter years of his life, he wrote mostly prose, and he has left many well-drawn portraits of his contemporaries, in addition to several books of criticism, with much color and charm, but little definiteness. He was always vague, for facts did not interest him, but he had the power of making his remote, unreal world attractive, and among the writers of the school of Gautier he stands among the first. Le Café, from The Soul of Paris Imagine a place where you do not endure the horror of being alone, and yet have the freedom of solitude. There, free from the dust, the boredom, the vulgarities of a household, you reflect at ease, comfortably seated before a table, unencumbered by all the things that oppress you in houses. For if useless objects and papers had accumulated here, they would have been promptly removed. You smoke slowly, quietly, like a Turk following your thoughts among the blue curves. If you have a voluptuous desire to taste some warm or refreshing beverage, well-trained waiters bring it to you immediately. 
if you feel like talking with clever men who will not bully you you have within reach light sheets on which are printed winged thoughts rapid written for you which you are not forced to bind and preserve in a library when they have ceased to please you this place the paradise of civilization the last and inviolable refuge of the free man it is the cafe but in the ideal as we dream it as it ought to be the lack of room and the fabulous cost of land on the boulevards of paris make it hideous in actuality in these little boxes of which the rent is that of a palace one would be foolish to look for the space of a vestiary besides the walls are decorated with stove-pipe hats and overcoats hung on clothes-pegs, an abominable sight, for which atonement is offered by multitudes of white panels and ignoble gilding, imitations made by economical process. And, let us not deceive ourselves, the overcoat, with which one never knows what to do, and which makes us worry everywhere, in society, at the theatre, at balls, is the great enemy in the abominable enslavement of modern life. Happy the gentlemen of the age of Louis the Fourteenth, who, in the morning, dressed themselves for all day in satin and velvet, their brows protected by wigs, and who remained superb, even when beaten by the storm, and who, moreover, brave as lions, ran the risk of pneumonia even if they had to put on one outside the other, the innumerable waistcoats of Jodelet in Les Précises Ridicule. How shall I find my overcoat and my wife's party cape? is the great and only cry, the Hamlet monologue of the modern man, that poisons every minute of his life and makes him look with resignation toward his dying hour. On the morning after a ball given by Marshal McMahon, nothing is found. The overcoats have disappeared. The satin cloaks, the boas, the lace scarfs have gone up in smoke, and the women must rush in despair through the driving snow while their husbands try to button their evening coats, which will not button. One evening, at a party given by the wife of the President of the Chamber of Deputies, at which the gardens were lighted by electricity, Gambetta suddenly wished to show some of his guests a curiosity, and invited them to go down with him into the bushes. A valet hastened to hand him his overcoat, but the guests did not dare ask for theirs, and followed Gambetta as they were. However, I believe one or two of them survived. At the café, no one carries off your overcoat. No one hides it. But they are all hung up, spread out on the wall like masterpieces of art, treated as if they were portraits of Mona Lisa or Violante, and you have them before your eyes. You see them continually. Is there not reason to curse the moment your eyes foresaw the light? One may, as I have said, read the papers. Or rather, one might read them if they were not hung on those abominable racks, which remove them a mile from you and force you to see them on your horizon. As to the drinks, give up all hope, for the owner of the café has no proper place for their preparation, and his rent is so enormous that he has to make the best even of the quality he sells. But aside from this reason, the drinks could not be good, because there are too many of them. The last thing one finds at these coffee-houses is coffee. 
it is delicious divine in those little oriental shops where it is made to order for each drinker in a special little pot as to syrups how many are there in paris in what conceivable place can they keep the jars containing the fruit juices needed to make them a few real ladies rich well-born good housekeepers not reduced to slavery by the great shops who do not rouge or paint their cheeks still know how to make in their own homes good syrups from the fruit of their gardens and their vineyards but they naturally do not give them away or sell them to the keepers of cafes but keep them to gladden their flaxen-haired children such as it is with its failings and its vices even a full century after the fame of Procope, the cafe which we cannot drive out of our memories has been the asylum and the refuge of many charming spirits the old tabaret who after having been illustrious now has a sort of half popularity and a pewter bar formerly heard the captivating conversations of barbet and of aurevier who were rivals in the noblest salons and who sometimes preferred to converse seated before a marble table in a hall from which one could see the foliage and the flowers of the luxembourg Baudelaire also talked there, with his clear, caressing voice, dropping diamonds and precious stones, like the princess of the fairy tale, from beautiful red, somewhat thick lips. A problem with no possible solution holds in check the writers and the artists of Paris. When one has worked hard all day, it is pleasant to take a seat, during the short stroll that precedes the dinner, to meet one's comrades and talk with them of everything but politics. The only favorable place for these necessary accidental meetings is the café. But is the game worth the candle, or, to speak more exactly, the blinding gas-jets? Is it worth while, for the pleasure of exchanging words, to accept criminal absinthe, unnatural bitters, tragic vermouth, concocted in the sombre laboratories of the cafés by frightful parasites? Aurelien Chaud who, being a fine poet and excellent writer, is naturally a practical man, had a pleasing idea. He wished that the reunions in the cafés might continue at the absinthe hour, but without the absinthe. A very honest man, chosen for that purpose, would pour out for the passers-by, in place of everything else, excellent claret with quinquina which would have the double advantage of not poisoning them and of giving them a wholesome and comforting drink. But this seductive dream could never be realized. Of course, honest men exist in great numbers, among keepers of cafés as well as in other walks of life. But the individual honest man could not be found who would be willing to pour out quinquina, wine, in which there was both quinquina and wine. In the Palais Royal, there used to be a café which had retained empire fittings and oil lamps. One found there real wine, real coffee, real milk, and good beefsteaks. Roqueplan, Arsène José, Michel Lévy, and the handsome Fiorentino used to breakfast there, and they knew how to get the best mushrooms. The proprietor of the café had said that as soon as he could no longer make a living by selling genuine articles he would not give up his stock in trade to another but would sell his furniture and shut up shop he kept his word he was a hero ballad 
on the mysterious hosts of the forest from the caryatids still sing the mocking fairies as of old beneath the shade of thorn and holly tree the west wind breathes upon them pure and cold and still wolves dread diana roving free in secret woodland with her company tis thought the peasants hovels know her right when now the wolds are bathed in silver light and first the moonrise breaks the dusky gray then down the dells with blown soft hair and bright and through the dim wood diane thrids her way with water weeds twined in their locks of gold the strange cold forest fairies dance in glee sylphs over timorous and over bold haunt the dark hollows where the dwarf may be the wild red dwarf the nixie's enemy then mid their mirth and laughter and affright the sudden goddess enters tall and white with one long sigh for summers passed away the swift feet tear the ivy nets outright and through the dim wood diane thrids her way she gleans her sylvan trophies down the wold she hears the sobbing of the stags that flee mixed with the music of the hunting rolled but her delight is all in archery and not of ruth and pity whateth she more than hounds that follow on the flight the tall nymph draws a golden bow of might and thick she reins the gentle shafts that slay she tosses loose her locks upon the night and through the dim wood diane thrids her way envoy prince let us leave the din the dust the spite the gloom and glare of towns the plague the blight amid the forest leaves and fountain spray there is the mystic home of our delight and through the dim wood diane thrids her way translation of andrew lang aux enfants perus i know cythera long is desolate i know the winds have stripped the garden green alas my friends beneath the fierce sun's weight a barren reef lies where love's flowers have been nor ever lover on that coast is seen so be it for we seek a fabled shore to lull our vague desires with mystic lore to wander where love's labyrinths beguile there let us land there dream for evermore it may be we shall touch the happy isle the sea may be our sepulchre if fate if tempest wreak their wrath upon us serene we watch the bolt of heaven and scorn the hate of angry gods that smite us in their spleen perchance the jealous mists are but the screen that veils the fairy coast we would explore come though the sea be vexed and breakers roar come for the breath of this old world is vile haste we and toil and faint not at the oar it may be we shall touch the happy isle gray serpents trail in temples desecrate where cypress smiled the golden maid the queen and ruined is the palace of our state but happy loves flit round the mast and keen the shrill winds sings the silken chords between heroes are we with wearied hearts and sore whose flower is faded and whose locks are hoar haste ye light skiffs where myrtle thickets smile love's panthers sleep mid roses as of yore it may be 
we shall touch the happy isle. Envoy. Sad eyes. The blue sea laughs as heretofore. Ah, singing birds, your happy music poor. Ah, poets, leave the sordid earth awhile. Flit to these ancient gods we still adore. It may be we shall touch the happy isle. Translation of Andrew Lang. Ballad de Pinas where wide the forest bows are spread where flora wakes with sylph and fay our crown and garlands of men dead all golden in the morning gay within this ancient garden gray are clusters such as no man knows where moor and soldan bear this way this is king louis orchard close these wretched folk wave overhead with such strange thoughts as none may say a moment still then sudden sped they swing in a ring and waste away the morning spites them with her ray they toss with every breeze that blows they dance where fires of dawning play this is king louis orchard close all hanged and dead they've summoned with hell to aid that hears them pray new legions of an army dread now down the blue sky flames the day the dew dies off the foul array of obscene ravens gathers and goes with wings that flap and beaks that flay this is king louis orchard close envoy prince where leaves murmur of the may a tree of bitter clusters grows the bodies of men dead are they this is king louis orchard close translation of andrew lang End of section 3